3: Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and I'll be taking you through our favourite asks and answers of 2018. This year we asked big names some of the big questions we thought you'd like answers to. I've spoken to Prime Ministers, Oscar winners and professional provocateurs. From Steve Bannon to ABBA, let's listen back to the best moments of a tumultuous year. Among our guests in 2018 were several people who used to work for Donald Trump. An early casualty of the administration was James Comey, dismissed as director of the FBI in May of 2017. The reasons for his departure centred around his handling first of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, then into Russian interference in the 2016 election. A non-partisan career ended under accusations of bias from both Democrats and Republicans. I asked him whether he felt he'd overstepped his role and become too involved in politics.
4: Well, when you're the referee in a World Cup match, are you involved in football? In a sense, you're on the field and you have to make calls, but that doesn't mean you're on one team or the other or rooting for one team or the other. The FBI found itself investigating one of the two candidates for president of the United States during the election. We were doomed in a way. The decisions I made were all made trying to pick the least bad of terrible options to protect the institution in the long run. And honestly, even in hindsight, and I've asked myself this a thousand times, I think we made the best decisions. Of course it led to damage to the FBI, but the question you have to ask is, compared to what? If I had chosen not to speak on the cusp of the election and concealed that we had restarted that
3: investigation?
4: I think I'd be reading an Inspector General report today excoriating me for damaging the FBI for the rest of my life.
3: The rate of attrition among President Trump's staff has set records, not least for the shortest-lived Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci, who spent a magisterial 11 days in office. He told me what he learned from his brief but explosive tenure.
0: Well, I got an 11-day PhD in Washington dishonesty. I got a, I, I understand now that the screenwriters from the Game of Thrones got together with the Hunger Games, and that wasn't enough, so they added the House of Cards screenwriters. And that still wasn't enough, so they went with the Veep people because there had to be a little bit of comedy. And so these people are absolutely treacherous, and they're absolutely ruthless because they're close to power. And so the power is a corruptive force. And so what I That's also— It's like read,
3: everyone's fault except yours.
0: No, I I made probably 10 phone books of mistakes in my life, and I probably made five phone books of mistakes in 11 days. I was ill-suited for the job for many different reasons, but the main one is I had no experience in dealing with people like that.
3: came to a head when you described Steve Bannon, who's also been on this show as a a Mm self-relating sort of person. I think that would.
0: Yeah, that's uh, a little unfair because because what happened was the reporter, if you listen to the entire tape, he was suggesting to me that he wanted to do a profile on me in the New Yorker. And I said I wasn't as self-promotional as Steve Bannon. And then I used that comment, okay, which was an aggressive comment that I regret. I don't disclaim blame, I take full accountability for the mistake, and I say, by the way, it cost me my job. I never broke ranks with the President. I want you to think about that, okay? I came in, he asked me to do a job, okay, couldn't stand Steve Bannon. And by the way, what I said about Steve Bannon is exactly what the President said about Steve Bannon in January, but for the expletive. I know how to evaluate talent. This guy's a very, very bad guy. And I'll debate Steve Bannon. Maybe you invite him and sit at that microphone. Well, I'll debate him anytime, I, I, I think because
3: I anytime, could any sell place some uh, for that Well, Mrs. she said, "Well, uh, <laughs> man.
0: I will swim over here if you can get Steve Bannon to sit right there."
3: Well, we didn't manage to get them in the same room, or at least not yet. But Steve Bannon and I did sit down in September. The episode was part of our Open Future Festival, celebrating the 175th anniversary of The Economist, with a debate of ideas about liberal democracy and free speech. Since leaving the White House Mr. Bannon has set his sights across the Atlantic. His new initiative called rather grandly the movement aims to promote economic nationalism and right-wing populism across Europe. So I wanted to know about his limits. Is he going too far towards embracing those who flirt with ultranationalism or even fascism?
1: Absolutely not. It's it's Merkel. It's Merkel. In the elites in Germany, no, I think so you, I think I think these. Well, are, the
3: alternative for Deutschland. Yeah, but I think these what, are. I, what about I that? Think that? Is that I th- not a movement that concerns you? Because it absolutely does what you say it does. It channels the frustrations that you've described, but it is an unpleasant and sometimes threatening. Mood. Does that I think, not I, think, I think
1: in Swedish Democrats and Alternative for Deutschland and other parties like that that have some sort of uh, beginnings or whatever in, in, in those parties of that, they are moving those parties to uh, policies that are uh, more acceptable to a broader range. That's why they're increasing at the polls. People understand that the Alternative for Deutschland people are not racist. They understand they're not nativist. They understand they're not they're not. You give me a look. I, I am giving You're giving you are giving me look. a look. I'm giving, giving you a look a- because I spent quite a lot does, of time talking to. Does so- returner for Deutschland. Yeah, ok, by yeah. the way, does returner for Deutschland have a certain base of that party that it, that is that it, you could define as potentially problematic. Maybe is our, our, our are Alfred Vital and Beatrice Storch and other leaders going and working with that every day to try to become more acceptable to a broader range of Germans, and that's how they get to power. That's how that's how they're going to increase from fourteen percent to nineteen percent. It's what the Swedish Democrats are doing.
3: The impact of this new economic and often ethnic nationalism, particularly in Eastern Europe, provoked deep concern for another of my guests. Madeleine Albright was America's first female Secretary of State under
5: Bill Clinton. She was very clear about where she lays the blame. It is being exacerbated by the Russians, frankly. What's who, your evidence for that? Well, I think that what we see are is more and more influence of Russia and the Balkans. They weren't very happy with what happened in the first place, whether it's Slavic solidarity or a variety of aspects. and uh, basically, and uh, is that the Russians are trying to undermine, what we call Western civilization, though they seem to believe that they are the keepers of Western civilization through Orthodox religion and being anti any of the changes um, in our society. So I have to tell you, I've never seen such a complex time where there are all kinds of movements that call upon people to be patriotic, and then it turns into having that patriotism be pushed against a group they don't like, a scapegoat. That's one part. And then there are obviously a lot of economic issues, and then there are the migrants, and so everything kind of piles up in order to undermine democratic governments, which require compromise.
3: The Me Too movement continued to shape our conversations through 2018, and one of our first guests of the year was Tina Chen, former chief of staff to Michelle Obama. She's now lead lawyer on Time's Up, which provides legal support to victims of sexual harassment. And I asked her how optimistic she was about the potential for real
2: progress. I have been an advocate on sexual assault and women's rights for four or five decades now, and It is long been gone on for millennia that women have not been believed. That women, you know, who have been assaulted and harassed, are frequently not believed. You know, it's it's not that long ago that it was perfectly legal, you know, here in the United States to introduce evidence of a woman's prior sexual past when she brought a claim of rape against, you know, a rapist. Um, we finally mm-hmm. outlawed that, but it took outlawing it to change the practice. So, you know, it you know we're in a moment right now again where, after millennia of women not being believed. Um, when they have spoken out, where the tide is slowly turning.
3: The movement started out in Hollywood, so is what's changing reflected on our screens. Sarah Rafty plays formidable redhead Donna Paulson in the long-running American legal drama Suits. For her, Me Too marked a decisive shift. I had a conversation with Aaron Korsh, our creator, and I said, we have to take Donna somewhere. Now. Now. Right now. And he heard me and I appreciate that. And then when we came into season seven, Donna spoke up for herself and said it was time for her to be a partner at the firm and stepped into a role, not perfectly easily. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't, it was a tough road for her as it would be for anybody to try to make partner and eventually become the COO of the firm. But I was thrilled that he heard me. I think that kind of representation on television is really important. I think it's a really exciting time for women. We're just going to hear more more female stories and we're going to see more women directing, more women in powerful positions,
2: and I'm really thrilled about that for my kids.
3: But as the year went on, that perception changed. In the autumn, as Me Too turned a year old, a YouGov poll found that scepticism over claims of harassment had actually risen. On our show, Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist and critic of liberal thinking, told me why he remains wary of the movement.
6: I think that it risks damaging the presumption of Im- innocence. I mean, there's plenty. Is there of...
3: more to it than that? Oh,
6: sure. Women, women, women face the the arbitrary admixture of sexual uh, advance and workplace and workplace performance all the time. It's a very complicated thing to sort out, but we don't know exactly what the rules are for governing male and female behaviour in the workplace because we've only been working together for about 35 years. We we don't know.
3: After 35 years, wouldn't it be possible to figure something out?
6: Not when you're talking about a a transformation in behaviour that's that profound. But they men do. don't know how to you know, Millions with of women. men
3: and women across the world go to yeah, work together have, day but, in, day well, out. But you are the
6: one so who asked about Me you're Too. You're the one me who. Too. Don't
3: start with you're the one who.
6: Me too, is a, well, me too is an expression of the fact that men and women are having a hard time regulating their behaviour in the workplace.
3: Well, who do you agree with? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or we're on Twitter at Economist Radio. We love to hear from you, and you might hear your magical words read out on one of our shows. We pride ourselves on asking the right questions here on The Economist Asks, but not all of my guests like to draw breath long enough to be asked. Bishop Michael Curry captivated a crowd of Britain's great and good and millions of television viewers with his powerful sermon at Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding in May. This
6: way of love. Uh-uh. This no, way no, of no, love? I know, no, no, no. Sorry, no, 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 fi- no, no, Come let me finish. Let me finish, no, no, let me finish. Hold no, it's on. It's not a sermon. Hold it on, my sister. Hold on,
0: hold on. Hold on, my sister, hold on. This way of love changes everything. It makes space for all of us. That's what we saw, and that's the hope for all
3: of us. In 2018, I got to interview one of my all-time cultural heroes, Bjorn Ulvaeus of ABBA. After I thanked him for the music, we got on to politics. So I asked Bjorn, as a Europop super trooper, how he feels about the tensions testing the EU.
7: I feel very bad about that. I'm a European through and through. And I'm really, really sad that some of the Brits feel that they, you know, wanna, don't want to be among <laughs> their friends anymore. And I just don't understand it. But there you go. Uh, I hope that um, the rest of Europe will s- somehow find some strength to... Uh, withstand the populists and, and those who um, deep down want to be dictators and, and are enemies of democracy, I think, deep down.
3: You've seen so, your own country change quite a lot as well, haven't you from the I mean, your yes. music is used in the Lucas Moison film SOS, about changes in Swedish society from a kind of to put the boot on the other foot, so to speak, that the social democratic ideal is also a bit tattered, isn't it? And it it's is. It is
7: It's very tattered all over Europe, all over the world, perhaps. It, it's like they cannot find the path anymore, and they, uh, the, the relevance. Everyone wonders what, what is the relevance in social democracy.
5: It used to so nice, it used to be so good.
7: But I think liberal democracy, when it's at its best in Europe, that's what we must be fighting for.
3: Fortunately, between moments of doom and gloom, we found plenty to laugh at on the show, with a little help from David Sedaris. The American humorist is an expert at finding comedy in the most excruciating of
2: circumstances. Quite often, something awful will happen to me, and then I just think, one day, this will be funny. And on that day, I will write about it. One thing that stands out is when I first moved to Paris, I got a kidney stone. And so I went to the hospital, and they told me to. They took care of it and told me to come back in a week for some tests. So I returned a week later, and the nurse led me to a dressing room. And I knew undress to your underpants. I knew that term from a medical French book that I had. But then she said, "I don't know that. and I said, "What?" And she said, I don't know that. "You can only ask twice. You can only say what twice." So I go into a dressing room, and there are two doors leading out of it. And I undress to my underpants, and I walk out that door, and there's a little waiting room, and I sit there in my underpants, which are briefs, right? And then I'm sitting there, and then this couple comes in, fully dressed, and takes a seat. And then some other people come in, fully dressed, and they take seats. And I am the only person in his underpants (laughs) in that room. And... I'm thinking, oh, she must have said something about a robe, and she must have said something about the other door. But I feel like if I get up and return to the dressing room, I'll look like a fool. It's got sort of Monsieur
3: Hulot kind of quality (laughs) to this scene, hasn't it?
2: And I'm not comfortable at all, like, with my shirt off, let alone my pants off. And I just remember sitting there thinking, one day this will be funny. Today is not that day, but the day will come when it is funny to me.
3: Here's hoping... So much for our whistle-stop tour of the best of 2018. If you're not too dizzy, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if we've missed out any of your favourite moments from the year, or you have a burning question for The Economist asks to answer, well, do let us know. For now, bring on 2019. See you there. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.